So we're going to form a big circle right now, and Jesse's going to come dance. <laughs> That's so great. I said, have you seen that when she came in earlier? I said, have you seen the video announcements? And she's like, no. And I said, well, you're in them. She was like, oh, no. Yeah. Sometimes we ask for your permission, and then sometimes we ask for your forgiveness. And then sometimes we don't care. Uh, yeah. Hey, we do have some giveaways I want to do for the, uh, the, the dads of Devoted. For uh, you know, my, my kids are, are teenagers now, so they really take care of me when Vanessa is away. It, it kind of shifts at some point, Dad. But dads, but I uh, I did a post on my Facebook page. We're not going to look at them now. You can go on there and check them out. Uh, we did a little bit of a contest for dads to post some some uh, 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 little videos or memes or something like that to kind of make fun of their their lack of of, of parenting skills. A.K.A. David Godwin strollers, and uh, so so this. I don't know if Chris and Ashley Ewers are here. I don't. Do, are the Ewers here? But this is for Chris Ewers. If you want to see, he posted two hilarious uh, memes on our page. So I'm gonna. We'll save that for him. Uh, but also some honorable mentions. One is for Jordan Kimball. Jordan's in here somewhere. Where's Jordan? There he is. You've got to see this T-shirt that he has. It's absolutely hilarious. That uh, that says, "Yes, I'm the, my children's father." Yes, my, their mom knows that I have them and we're okay, right? It's, just, it's hilarious. It's a great t-shirt. And so who else? There's Alvin. Is Alvin in here? Alvin did like a photo shoot with his daughter, got her dressed. So I'm giving this to him out of spite, right? Because while the rest of us were just trying to survive, he was surpassing us. And then I had one left over and we'll just give this one for Pastor David. Because Hannah, now he knows how to put the stroller together. He knows, yeah. I know, I know. But she's, she's going to find out. She's gonna, she is going to find out. That's so great. We'll just stop and wait for them so they can just go ahead and tell the story. No, just kidding. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're launching into a new series tonight. I'm excited for this series. I think it's going to speak to us. I think it's going to challenge us uh, in many ways, uh, at many levels, uh, as we move into 2018. I'm just going to read these a uh, couple of verses, and then we'll get started. This is out of Matthew 7. This is, you know, Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It, it takes up Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in, in, in this series, we're going to take two of these verses, but there's so much in just these two verses, I think we're going to be in it for the whole series. Beginning in verse 13, it says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few... Only a few will ever find it. So if you live in Newport News or from the 757, then you know about the Nolan Trail. How many people have walked the Nolan Trail, right? Come on, that's a lot of hands. So, so I did that to set you up because now you have to participate. So what's your favorite part of the Nolan Trail? I'll point to you, you just shout it out. What's your favorite part of the Nolan Trail? The end. Oh, that's so great. That's awesome. When it's over. The same thing. Wow. Scrooges, everyone, this row, Father, we just pray for them in Jesus' name, right? For the joy of the Lord. Somebody else, somebody else, something, favorite thing about the Nolan Trail, Miss Scotty. Walking with a friend, come on, see how easy that was? I know, see? 
The Lion's Bridge. Do you, do you like that? Because why? Just the big statues and yeah, it's pretty cool there, isn't it? When you come out of the woods and there's the river. The scenery. Stop to feed the turtles. There you go. Yeah. Somebody else? Gorgeous in the fall, right? Because all the leaves are changing. Water. Lots of water. I think it's 167 acres is the lake, is Lake Mari. The pathways are really marked. There's lots of directions that are on there. I like it. Somebody else? Nolan Trail. The seashells. Yeah, when you get out on the James, there's some shells there. Or we would call them river shells since it's the James River. But Okay, all right, all right. Just got to pick on Jamal a little bit. The trees are gorgeous. Jordan? You can't get lost, right? It's impossible. Well, some people in here might be able to. We won't name them, but it would be really hard. Chrissy? Recently charging the hills. Charging the hills. Like as in running up the hills? Nice. It's good to see you here, Doug. I know. Not right now. Benches where you need them. Come on. Somebody else. Anybody back here? Favorite thing for Nolan Trail? Tara? Watching people trip over the roots. You learn about people, right? You learn about people. And Tara's like, let's wait here. That root, right? Somebody's done. And there's no, do you like that? Did you get the picture there that Tara's not saying, look out for that root? Right? All right. We got you, Tara. We got you. 550 acres of privately maintained, naturally wooded property that offers visitors a quiet, serene place to walk, run, and picnic. As we said, it's 167 acres is, is Lake Mari. The trail is five miles. It's, it's more or less a circle, even though it kind of takes a, a meandering run. But it's important to understand that it is a big loop. And so you can Start it from either direction. I remember it was a few years ago, we were on the Nolan Trail, and it was a, a guy's life group, like a guy's small group, and we were walking the Nolan Trail together once a week. And so we were there as a group walking, and then Will and Heather Anger, who used to come to the church here, and they, they've moved out to Colorado, but, but he's just this intense athlete. And, and so he wasn't in our group, but as we were walking, we see this guy just come flying by. And like a full sprint, which you don't see a lot, right, on the Nolan Trail because it's five miles. But if you know Will Anger, that's how he would run the Nolan Trail. It's just because five miles is a sprint for him. And so he just flies right by us and waves and keeps going. And we're like, he is a beast, right? So about 30 minutes later, I kid you not, about 30 minutes later, here he comes again. Yeah, it's like the, the opening to uh, uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, right? It keeps going by him, on your left, on your left. And so we were impressed with him the first time. The second time, right, we just wanted to stick our leg out and just trip him up. And so I, about a 30 minutes later, here he comes again. And this time he stops and walks with us the rest of the way. We had to confess all the bad things that we said about Will on the trail. And so, as, as Jesse said, one of my favorite things about the Nolan Trail is, is that it's well marked, right? And, and, and so, the, the trail is marked in a unique way, as you can see on the picture, that it has two-sided markers because you can enter the trail from and move in either direction. And that's important because if you're like me and you're a, a little bit of a task-oriented person, maybe some people would call it OCD, but I would, I would not call it that, you, you want to know how far you've gotten and how far you have to go. So as you're walking along, you see a one on your side and a four on the other side that's upside down. It means you've gone a mile and you've got 
four to go, right? People that started and, and went in the other direction as we're passing each other, they see a four on their side, then they've only got one to go. But what happens when you see this marker? You're halfway. So if you're getting tired, turn back before you get here. Are you talking with me? Because if you get to here and you say, I am worn out, even with the benches, I'm just going to turn back and, right? You're going just as far. For some of you here, this is how you do life. This is how you do life. You have been struggling with junk for so long that you have bought into the belief and the idea that it's too late to turn back. It works for navigating natural trails in our natural world for natural living, but in our spiritual life, when you're walking with Christ, as David talked about already, it's never too late to turn back. It's never too late to turn back. For some of you, you're here tonight, and this is what you're saying. You're saying, Fred, I've, I've fought this addiction for too long. It's too late to turn back. Every day that addiction's been looking you in the face, and it feels like it's been forever for you, and, and, and now what you're saying is, I've, I've passed the halfway point in my life with this addiction. Why even try? It's too late to turn back. My marriage has been broken for too long. We've done counseling. We've done everything. We, we've done it all. Our marriage is still a wreck. It's too late to turn back. I've been in this dead-end job for too long. It's too late to turn back. I've been waiting for this dream that God's promised to me for too long. It's too late to turn back. Maybe you're like Jonah, and you would say, I've been running from God for too long, and now it feels like it's too late to turn back. These words in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 are given to us for many reasons, as we're going to see in this series together. But I tell you tonight, one of the most important reasons that Jesus gave us these words is to look you in the eye and to look me in the eye and say, I don't care what you're struggling with, it's never too late to turn back and to start over. Somebody say eternity. Eternity. God loves this imagery of being on a journey. He, he loves this idea of a road or a path. And so many times the Bible uses the word way to talk about this, this, this journey in life. In Psalm 119, 105, one of my favorites says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 1611 says, You will show me the way of life, and the way there means a path on this journey. Granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Proverbs 4.26 says, mark out a straight path for your feet and stay on the safe way. Look at Jesus' parables. I would fathom a guess that probably at least half of them talk about people on a journey, going away on a journey, talking about a road or a path. This imagery is so powerful for us in understanding our spiritual lives, and Jesus picks up with it right here in one of the most famous verses that talks about our life being a path and a road and a way. As we get into the series, we're going to dig into how there are two gates, there are two roads, there are two crowds, and there are two destinations. Just in these two verses, everything is in duplicate. We're going to talk about what that means later tonight, and we're going to spend time with each one of them through the series. But the one that we're going to focus in on tonight is this idea of there are two destinations, two destinations. It says right here in the, 
in the, in the translation that I read to you of the New Living Translation, it, it just goes as far to say that the one destination is hell. And in some of them it says it's the way of destruction, and the other says it's the way of life, and it's left to a little bit of interpretation. And then some translations, just it just gives it to us, like the New Living Translation. It's one of the reasons why I like this translation. It talks about the way of life is the kingdom of God, which we know to be the heaven that waits for us, and the way of destruction is, is hell. It's the only other option. There are only two. All of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus talking to us about turning back and living a different way. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is identifying problems that we struggle with in our humanity, and he's saying to you, he was saying to them, and he's saying to every generation that's ever going to come, if you're struggling with these areas, it's time to turn back and live a different way. Look at Matthew 5, 27 to 28. He gets a little personal, doesn't he? Don't you love that about Jesus? You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. People in the crowd like, yep, I've heard that one. But I say anyone that even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, I, I know that there's some things that you feel like you're better than other people because you haven't done this, but let me tell you what you are doing, and it's still wrong. All of us have something in our lives that Jesus will point to and say, you got to turn back with this thing. you got to live a different life. Matthew 6, 19 to 20 says, don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal, but you should store up your treasures in heaven through faith promise at the City Life Church. Just making sure you're paying attention. Where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in. So maybe your struggle isn't lust. Maybe your struggle is materialism. Maybe your, your struggle is fear when it comes to finances. Maybe your struggle is forgetting that everything that you have belongs to God. And Jesus says, you got to turn back. you got to stop looking at your stuff that way because it's his and he's going to tell us what he wants us to do with it. Listen to Matthew 7, 3 through 4. Because if he hasn't gotten you yet, he gets you on this one. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? We're all loggers in this life. How can you think of saying to your friend, hey, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Every one of us have had times in our lives where we're completely unaware of a problem that we have and we're trying to help someone else deal with a problem that's relative to ours is minuscule and one of the reasons why, and we're surprised that they won't receive our help and it's because they're looking at you and looking at me and saying, I don't want you helping me with my junk because your junk's twice as big as mine. And Jesus says, you got to stop that. And it's never too late to turn back. When you read Matthew 5, 6, and the first part of 7, it's an incredible list of how God says to you and he says to me, this is the best way to live. Turn back and reach for it. So he gets to these two verses in 13 and 14, and he says to you, and he says to me, and when you die... You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Now, if you read the Sermon on the Mount in the wrong way, the conclusion that so oftentimes we come to is this is Jesus kind of in a nice way threatening us. 
In a nice way, it seems as though Jesus is saying to you and he's saying to me, and if you don't get this right, it could cost you forever. If the things that you choose keep you from making a vow of devotion to Christ and embracing the grace that only he can give, it could cost you everything forever. It, it feels like Jesus is, is laying down a gauntlet here. But that's not what he's doing. He's really doing just the opposite. Jesus talks about two destinations because he's trying to help us understand a principle about trails in life that are eternal. And what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me when he starts talking about heaven and talking about hell, he's saying to you and to me, don't forget, as real as this life is, it's just a moment. Forever is waiting for you. And the imagery that he's creating here is one out of love for you and for me because what he's saying is, I don't care how long you've been struggling with lust, if that was you I was talking to earlier in the sermon. I don't care how long you've been struggling with materialism and fear in your finances, if that was you I was talking to earlier in my sermon. I don't care how long you've been struggling with being judgmental and lacking a self-awareness. If that was you I was talking to in my sermon, if you've been struggling with it for 75 years, what you need to know is you're still just one step into your existence and it's not too late to turn back. We see life like this. I'm past halfway. I've been in it for too long. I might as well just keep going because my marriage isn't going to ever get better. This addiction's going to own me for the rest of my lives. I'm going to have to struggle in this dead-end job until it's all said and done. You've got your own list for what that means for you. And Jesus looks at you tonight like he looked at them 2,000 years ago. And he said, I don't care if you're 150 years old. You're eternal. You've just taken one step. And it's not too late to turn back. Who gets onto the Nolan Trail besides Paige and Jen and, and gets five steps in and says, I might as well just keep going. I've gone too far. Right? The, you can still see the porta potties if you turn around. Right? You go, of course I can go back. Jesus is saying that's what your life is like in the grand scheme of eternity. You feel like you're so far into the woods, you might not even ever come out because you've been in it for so long. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not too late to turn back. You and I need a vision of our eternity so no matter how long we've been struggling and suffering with any situation, there is a hope that will rise up in our hearts that says, I've got time to turn back because I'm a forever being. And Jesus will help us find the way. Somebody say authority. So one of my favorite parts of spring, right here. May's going to throw up a slide for us. I know. What is that? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is manna from heaven is what it is. If you're new to the 757, I don't know when they open, but when they do, you will see me there. 
Memorial Day weekend, is that when they are? And then we should just have them here sooner rather than later, right? We had the Pelican snow truck here, right, last fall. And, and, and I'm telling you, it is delicious. It is the softest ice, but this is the part that I want to see. If, if you have a problem with indecision, don't go stand in front of this board. Or if you do, then make sure you're making room for people to go past you. Don't be that person that's holding up the line for the rest of us, right? Just, I just want to get that off my chest. So, right? But, but we're used to, there's so many options. And then, right, then, if you're adventuresome, you can start mixing the flavors. I haven't gotten there yet, right? That's too much for me, right? I've got a few that I stick to, and that's, right? You can get ice cream on the bottom. I know. Spring is coming, people. It's worth the pollen for the pelican snow. But this is how you and I, this is how we live our lives. We don't like the idea of limits. We don't like the idea that other people say to us, these are your only two choices, that's all you got. But if you read through the teachings of Christ more often than not, that's all he gives. There's just two. And sometimes we struggle with Christianity because we want a pelican snow menu and Jesus says, nope, you got two options. And then he says to you and to me, and I'm the one that gets to tell you which one you should pick. And I'm the one that gets to determine the consequences if you pick the wrong one. We, we love the image of the love of God, but what I'm gonna tell you tonight is you will never reciprocate that love until you get a vision for his authority. All throughout these two verses, there's only twos. Gates, ways, peoples, destinations. The whole close of the Sermon on the Mount starts in verse 13. If you're a note taker, it's 13 to 29. So many times we've, we've grown up in churches that teach us that the, 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 the close is just the parable of the sinking sand, right? The house that built their house on sinking sand and the one that built on solid rock, but that's just the close of the close, right? Because Jesus is a real preacher. He's got to close more than one time, right? He closes three times on the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in 13, then he makes the shift to the second close, right? Because he's trying to make a point. There's only two. There's two trees, two fruits. There's bad trees, there's good trees, there's bad fruit, there's good fruit. He's the one that tells us what kind of fruit came from our life. He gets to the end and he, he talks about only two kinds of fountain, just two. That's it, just two. And he judges which foundation we used in this existence Matthew 7, 28 to 29 reads this way. When Jesus had finished saying these things, right? Five, six, and seven. These things is a packed phrase. The most famous sermon he ever preached. When he finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. Why? Listen to this. Because he taught with real love. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that. If your Bible says that, you need to get rid of that Bible and get a real one. Because he taught with real authority. He taught with authority. It doesn't mean he didn't love us. But the way he stepped up to humanity first was to bring a message of authority. I have the right to rule and govern your life with my Father, is what he's saying to us. 
And listen to the last part of verse 29. It says, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Why is that? They didn't teach with authority because they were more concerned about people accepting them than the message that they were supposed to preach. Jesus was more concerned about your eternity than his reputation. And so he taught with authority. He dealt in the world and in the realm of absolutes. Was it because he was on some kind of power trip? Does he get to the, the, the end of his sermon? He's a little bit hangry because lunch is overdue and he gets a little bit irritated and he just starts talking about all the things that people better do or else. No, that's not his heart for us. He's just spent all of this time in this famous sermon telling us and teaching us about all the different areas of our life where we need to turn back and live a different way. And then he comes to the beginning of his close and he says, because he knows people 2,000 years ago are just like us and people that are gonna come until Christ comes back. This sermon is for them too, where we're all gonna have this same mindset in our humanity that we struggle with, that it's too late for me. And Jesus starts his close by saying, stop thinking that because it's not too late. You're eternal. You're just two steps in. But in this close, he's also saying to you and he's saying to me by talking about the gates and the destinations and the, and the crowds and the ways and the trees and the fruits and the foundations, he's saying to you and he's saying to me that until you embrace my authority, you will never live a different life. Obedience comes from love, but love comes from authority. What Jesus doesn't want is for people to leave that day entertained. What he doesn't want is for people to leave that day of the Sermon on the Mount or for us to leave today. This is our Sermon on the Mount moment. Maybe you're hearing about the Sermon on the Mount for the first time. What he doesn't want us to do is leave with a sense of false hope that yes, it's not too late for me to turn back, so I'm gonna try, but if you just keep trying the way that you've been trying, you're gonna end up right back where you started from. Jesus is talking about his authority at the end in this close because he's trying to help us to understand the key to obedience and that when we do turn back that there's hope for real change. Exodus 20, verses one through 11. Exodus 20, the 10 commandments. Listen to how these things start. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. It sounds a little authoritative to me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods because he understands that love flows from authority. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and the entire family is affected, even children of the third and the fourth generations. That's another sermon for another time, but this oftentimes is misunderstanding God. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations for those who love me and obey my commandments. Verse seven, you must not. There's a lot of must nots in here, aren't there? You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. If we don't understand him, we will see him as threatening. But he's not threatening. He's loving. And the reason he's loving is because he tells us what we need to hear. 
And what we need to hear is that he has the right to rule and govern us because he created us and we belong to him. And until we get a vision for his authority, until I'm ready to surrender and submit my heart to him, I will never love him with the kind of love that leads to obedience. Listen to Deuteronomy 1 through 3. Listen to this. It's, it, he just puts it all in here for us, doesn't he? You must love the Lord your God and always obey his requirements and decrees and regulations and commands. Keep in mind that I am not talking now to your children who have never experienced my love and gentleness. Nope. It's not what it says. Keep in mind that I'm not talking now to your children who have never experienced the discipline of the Lord your God or seen his greatness and this strong and powerful arm. And then how does he describe his arm? It's one of consequences. They didn't see the miraculous signs and wonders he performed in Egypt against Pharaoh and his land. Jesus is talking about authority here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because he's trying to help us to understand one of the most powerful life principles that we will ever understand in our relationship with God. And that until I get a vision for his authority, I will not love him the way that I need to love him because true love, God's love, relationship that, that, of the love that's supposed to happen between me and my father, it comes from me respecting his authority to rule and govern my life. You can have affection for God. But affection is fleeting. If you're going to have true love from God, you've got to have submission to his authority first. And then out of that flows the capacity to obey. Where do we find that? We find it in John 14, 15. Listen to this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, we understand the Bible in light of itself. If you just take John 14, 15, if that's all you get, when it's time for you to turn back and you realize it's not too late for you and you want to live a different life, then you're going to get stuck in this place of trying to manufacture love in your heart for God because you know that if you love him more, you will obey him more. And that's true. But John 14, 15 isn't the only verse that's given to us. It's given to us in the context of all of Scripture. And all of Scripture says something bigger to us. And the first thing it says is God has the right to rule and govern by sovereign decree because he is the creator of all. And when my heart is ready to yield to him, something begins to happen in me. I begin to fall in love with him in ways that I never thought was possible. My heart overflows with the emotion of true love, the virtue of love, not the emotion of affection when I yield to his authority. And when that kind of love starts flowing in my heart, then you begin to find yourself with the strength and the ability and the motivation to live a different kind of life. So you don't find yourself on the same place in the trail over and over and over again. I'm on the trail. I need to turn back. And in light of my eternity, I understand it's never too late. And by embracing his authority, I understand that there is hope for me. And that there's hope for you. Galatians 5, 16 reads this way. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives 
and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. It's powerful, isn't it? So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. See, because there's another part to this whole story. There's another part to this incredible sermon. There's another part to this series, and it's called the gospel. Because if you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, even if you do everything that we're talking about tonight, you won't have what it takes. Because ultimately, in the end, the only way that we will ever find the strength to resist the temptation that will surely come to us is if there is a power that is stirring in us that is not of this world. There's something that the Bible calls the gospel. And we're going to be talking about the gospel the whole year. The gospel is the reality that you and I were born into this world enemies of God. We were. It was the nature of our condition that we inherited in our humanity all the way back to Adam and Eve. This is part of what the Ten Commandments is talking about, about generations. It's misunderstood. It's misapplied. The biggest application of that is trying to help us to understand our humanity and where it comes from and how we just pass it from one generation to the next. But there is a choice. There's an opportunity because of what this table says to us. That even though you and I were born into this world enemies of God, even though you and I are born into this world separated from God, Jesus Christ, God's son, died a death that we could never die. And he took upon himself, like we've already quoted in Isaiah from 53, that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Why does it talk about our peace? Because it means that through him we can be at peace with the one that we've always been enemies with before through Christ when he died for us when we make a vow of devotion to him we become the benefactor of his grace and our relationship with God can be restored it can be restored and we become a part of the family of God and in that moment something happens he fills us with his Holy Spirit So when I make a vow of devotion to Christ and I'm on this trail of life and I get a vision for the authority of God that leads to love for God, that leads to obedience to God, then I have the hope of not just the heaven that's to come, but the hope of believing that now I do not have to be victimized by sin ever again. Doesn't mean you're going to get it perfect because guess what? Our old stinking humanity is still there. And we're not going to shed it until we get to the end. But it should mean that we beat it a lot more than we used to. And it should mean that the way we start losing, which is one of the huge markers of spiritual maturity, that our sin becomes more about omission than it does commission. It means that at some point, Even with our dirty, rotten humanity, if we've made a vow of devotion to Christ and he's filled us with his spirit and we get a vision for the authority of God that leads to love for God, that leads to walking in obedience to God, that at some point, then yes, the morality issues that we used to struggle with, at some point, they should stop becoming our struggle. And now I'm 
My sin becomes all the good that I should have done and didn't do. Something happens on your journey of spiritual maturity when all of a sudden you're wrestling less with the sin of commission and wrestling more with the sin of omission. That's why in the end we can say we're all sinners till the very end. It's not supposed to be used as permission to just keep struggling with the old junk from your past. At some point, there's hope to break free. Listen, I'm supposed to break free from struggles of my morality so I can start fighting for the stuff that enables me to be a kingdom builder. He wants me to struggle with reading scripture more, reaching more, gathering more, serving more. He wants that to become the sin that I battle with because that's when my life begins to bear fruit. John 15, what what Pastor David was talking about. You read that, it's powerful. John 15 about the vine and the branches and it talks about no fruit, fruit, more fruit and much fruit. We want to be a church that inspires you to a much fruit life. A much fruit life. We're going to get the keyboards to come back up and play. We're going to finish the service a little bit differently tonight. We're not going to stay long in this, in this moment. But we knew we couldn't launch this series without giving some of you an opportunity to respond. We're going to do that in a couple of different ways. But the first one that we're going to do is just knowing that there's the possibility that some of you in here on your trail, you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. And life has brought you to this moment on your journey. Many of us here, as we look back into the story of our life, we find a moment in time on our trail where we stopped and we made a vow of devotion to him. And we became the benefactor of his grace. So I'm just going to ask you to all bow your heads with me. Just we want to create a moment of privacy. We're going to do this one this way, and then we're going to do a couple of the other ones a little bit differently. But I, I, just, I just want to create an opportunity for you to say something to God. Just People are closing their eyes just to create some privacy for you, just to protect your dignity. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else in this moment. I just want you to have a chance just to say, that's me. So if you're here tonight and you say, Fred, when I look back into the story of my life, I, I've, I can't find a moment where I've made a vow of devotion to Christ. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. This is just you taking a step, just taking a step. Just slip it up. Just slip it up. This is just your, your opportunity to say to Jesus, I know that you've got something that I need. Come on. I see that hand, man. Come on, somebody else. I know it takes courage. I know it's not easy. You just got to put it up there. This is your moment. This is your time. There's a gate that he wants you to pass through that we're going to be talking about next week, but you don't have to wait to next week to get through it. Come on. Father, I pray for people in here tonight that had a hand up. I pray for people in here tonight who needed to but didn't. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you're going to lead them to that moment of a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. This is how I want to do a couple of other closes before we go tonight. Just an opportunity to pray with people. If you're here tonight and you raised your hand, I hope you come find me at the end of the service. I'd like to talk with you, but that's your choice. If you're here and you didn't raise your hand and you want to come find me at the end of the service about what it means to make a vow of devotion to Christ, I hope you come find me. 
But there's other leaders here that maybe you know that you feel more comfortable talking to. I hope you take that step. But this is what I want to do to kind of close out the service. I know we usually close out with a moment of worship, but tonight we're going to close out with a moment of prayer, just praying for one another. And this is what I would say. If you're here tonight, if you're here tonight, and, you're, and you would be willing to say, because we're not going to close our eyes now, because sometimes we want to protect your privacy, but sometimes we want to call out your courage. If you would say, Fred, there's some things in my life that I'm struggling with that I've adopted an attitude that it's too late to turn back, and now I know that there's hope for me. Come on, if that's you tonight, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. Just this is your way of saying, there's stuff I've been struggling with, and I've bought into the mindset and the mentality that it's too late to turn back, and I know i got to change that. It's false thinking. So this is what I want to keep your hand up. Look, if there's somebody around you with the hand up, I just want you to gather around them and put your hand on them. We just want to pray for them. Find somebody that has a hand up if you're close to them. Keep it up there so people can see you. Keep it up so people can see you. We don't want anybody with a hand up who doesn't have people gathered around them for this moment of prayer. At the end of the service, too, there's people up here. Here's Nathaniel and Shani. If you want more prayer, there's going to be people up here to pray with you. Father, we lift up every person that has their hand up right now. We know this takes courage, God. It's hard to be conspicuous. But we know, God, that on this trail of life that we're on, that it's never too late. So whatever it is they're facing, no matter how long they've been struggling with it, Father, that tonight that they would leave here with a vision of their eternity like they've never had before. And they would see they're just two steps in. And that with you, it's never too late to turn back. And we declare over them tonight in the name of Jesus Christ that they're going to get a vision for your authority. And there's going to be a love that's going to begin to well up in their hearts this week that they've never known before. And that when, oh, when temptation comes, that because of the power of your Holy Spirit inside of them and the love of God that stirs within, they're going to have victory where they've never had victory before. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody sit together. Amen. We'll see you next week.